this morning we're going to be starting a brand new message series called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Now if you've ever read the Gospels, you know that Jesus taught radical, revolutionary, challenging, difficult things. I mean, shocking things. In our culture, I find that there are a lot of people that probably just claim to be kind of indifferent to Jesus. Like they don't love him, they don't hate him, they just don't, they don't really care. They don't really even think about him. And I think that's only because they really don't know or understand what Jesus actually taught. Because when Jesus was walking the face of this earth, he elicited one of two responses. People either heard his message and they tried to kill him, or they heard his message and they fell at his feet to worship him. And there was no middle ground when people were around Jesus. There was no like, man, I could take him or leave him. I just don't really care. Because Jesus challenged the status quo. He flipped everything in that society on its head. That's why many scholars call his kingdom the upside-down kingdom. He taught, he taught hard things. I mean, even, his own, even his own disciples oftentimes would come to him after he taught, and they would be like, Jesus, this is, this is hard. How, how do we, we don't even understand. How, how can we follow you? How can anybody follow you? These are, these are hard things. His own disciples uh, would, would question him in this way. And I think even for many of us who would be here, who would say that we're believers, I think we come across some of these hard teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. We sort of think, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. He meant something else. He couldn't have really meant that we were supposed to do these things. And so we so we kind of read some of these hard teachings and we just kind of immediately breeze by and kind of gloss over it because it's a lot easier just to pretend like he never said it or he didn't mean it than to actually grapple with some of these really difficult teachings and begin to apply them to our lives. And yet, as difficult as they may be, I think Jesus fully intended it for his followers to wrestle with all of his teachings. The ones that we like, and the ones that we wish weren't in there. And I think if most of us were honest this morning, we would have to confess that we all come across certain passages in the scriptures that we just kind of wish weren't in there. Like, man, I wish that wasn't in there. That would make my life a whole lot easier if Jesus would have never said that. And so we just kind of move past it. But I don't think that was Jesus' intention. I think he wanted us to really wrestle with these things. So we're not going to ignore these hard teachings. We're actually going to be kind of pressing into them. We're going to ask God to begin to shape our hearts and shape our lives through these hard teachings over the next eight weeks or so. So this series will take us right into the summertime, and then we'll do another book study over the course of this summer. So listen, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up, turn it on, whatever you got, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be part there this morning. You know, we, we live in a time and a culture where hatred and division thrives. Isn't that right? It's just, that's like part of our culture. The last few years especially, even the last few months, we've seen just incredible, unprecedented uh, political division. You know, I'm talking about, I, I know people that used to be friends and they're enemies now over, over politics. We've seen uh, racial tensions escalate just in the last uh, year or two uh, into really violent scenes and you know, examples in our culture could just go on and on. Division and hatred just seems to be the norm in our culture now. And all of the while, our culture and our relationships become more fractured and more unhealthy. And Jesus steps onto the scene and he speaks right into that in an incredibly radical and powerful way. 
Let me give you just a little bit of context before we dive into Matthew 5. At this point, Jesus has just begun his earthly ministry. And so he's traveling around to different cities. He's teaching. He's healing all kinds of people. He's doing all of these amazing miracles. And so crowds naturally begin to form, gather. These crowds go from probably dozens to hundreds, and then all of a sudden, thousands. So there's these massive crowds following Jesus, not just in his hometown, but from city to city to city. So it's just like this incredible thing where Jesus bursts onto the scene, and people are just absolutely dazzled by Jesus. Just dazzled by his teaching. In fact, Matthew says that his fame spread not just in that region, but to other countries like Syria. This is spreading like wildfire. And so Jesus goes up onto this mountain. Remember, he's got this crowd of thousands of people following around. So he goes up onto this mountain so that everybody can see him and hear him. And there he delivered his most famous sermon. Perhaps it's the most famous sermon that's ever been preached in human history, period. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, honestly, you're reading this. Jesus has just come onto the scene. He's developed a huge following, thousands of people. People are going crazy about Jesus, and they just can't believe it. This would have been a very good time for Jesus to start a megachurch. You know, like, hey, let's, let's start collecting some offerings. We're going we're gonna to build this you know, $30 million new temple structure to fit all these people in. Would have been a perfect time for Jesus to, to buy himself a really nice mansion on the Sea of Galilee, you know, maybe maybe a personal jet or I guess a personal boat in his day that he could have had on the Sea of Galilee. And so you kind of think, well, maybe that's what Jesus is going to do. It seems like that's what guys do when they get popular in our culture. Instead, what Jesus did and what he taught absolutely blew people's minds. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 43. We're going to jump kind of right in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his reign on the just and also on the unjust. Now, Jesus steps onto the scene at a time in history when the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, they had distorted scripture in unimaginable ways, and they had misled people about who God really was. So when Jesus gets up, he climbs up onto that mountain, and there's just a sea of people as far as the eye could see. And he says, listen, you have heard it said from your religious leaders that you are to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy, but I'm telling you, that's a lie. You are to love your enemy. Now, this would have been a revolutionary, radical idea, and here's why. The Greek word that Jesus uses here for love is agape. Now, the English language is very limited in this, in this way in terms of the idea of love, right? So I can love a hamburger, and I can love my wife, right? Or I can love a, I can love a candy bar, or I can love my sons and daughters. I mean, two totally different concepts and ideas but we only have one word, which is terrible, in our language to describe everything with the word, with the word love. In the Greek language, they had at least three primary words for love. The first one was phileo. Phileo was, a, was brotherly love. It was a friendship sort of love. That's where we get the word Philadelphia. So Philadelphia is known as the city of what? Brotherly love. We get that from the Greek language. 
The second type of love was called eros. We get the word erotic from eros. And so that's a romantic, sexual kind of love. Obviously, that God designed for a husband and a wife to enjoy together in the context of a monogamous, monogamous marriage. And then there was a third type of love. And this is the type of love that God has for his children, for his people. And it's agape love. That's the word that Jesus uses here. It's kind of surprising because you almost would think Jesus would use the word phileo. Like, hey, just be friendly to your enemies. Somebody hates you, just be kind to them. It would make perfect sense. That would be hard enough, wouldn't it? If Jesus just said, phileo, your enemies, be a friend, be friendly to your enemies. He doesn't use the word phileo. He used the word agape. I want to show you the definition of the word agape because it's mind-blowing. And it would have blown these people's minds in the first century as well. Here it is. Agape is a sacrificial love that voluntarily suffers inconvenience, discomfort, and even death for the benefit of another without expecting anything in return. And Jesus says, do that to your enemies. Not do that to your wife, your husband, your friends, the people that you love. He says, I want you to do that to your enemies. So Jesus didn't say, hey, listen, just be kind to your enemies. Just, just tolerate your enemies just a little bit. Listen, in our culture, tolerance has become sort of like the bar, hasn't it? Tolerance has become kind of like the mark of a loving person in our culture, which is really just an insane idea. And Jesus kind of steps on the scene and just obliterates that idea. Like, could you imagine when my wife and I, Cheryl and I, we got married back on that December day in 2003. Could you imagine when we were standing at the altar and we were getting ready to pledge our lives to one another. I'm looking at my future bride right in the face and I'm getting teary-eyed and the fishing is kind of going and the crowd's there and I'm just thinking about a future and I say, babe, I look at her eye and I say, baby, I will tolerate you the rest of my life. <laughs> I will so tolerate you. Until I breathe my last breath. Cheryl would say, I'm out. <laughs> I am not marrying you, right? And that she had every right to say that. Listen, Jesus was not espousing tolerance. Amen. He was not espousing kindness. He said, love your enemies. With a sacrificial love. Even when it's inconvenient. Even when it's uncomfortable. Even when it's hard. Love them with everything that you have. Jesus was just blowing people's minds because they had never, ever, ever heard somebody teach this way. And never heard anybody teach with this level of authority and fearlessness. Let me just pause here. This is not related to the text at all, so this is for free uh, this morning. But listen, our, our, our culture has created this image of Jesus. Kind of this rosy-cheeked, frail, weak, boring kind of lame dude, just like begging people to like him and accept him. That's what I tell you. There's nothing that can be further from the truth. Jesus was a fearless, he was a ferociously bold leader and teacher. Jesus was not this kind of like Mother Teresa with a beard looking guy. You know? That, so we, we got this weird image that we somehow have to destroy in our culture. Like I said, side note, sorry. Uh, but this particular teaching from Christ would have been absolutely revolutionary for at least a couple more reasons. The first is that the Pharisees had apparently taken some Old Testament passages. So they, like, they, they took the passage from Leviticus that says, love your neighbor. That's easy enough to understand. So they would teach that. Love your neighbor. 
But then they would begin to, to twist the meaning of it. So then they would take like Old Testament civil laws, like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You guys have heard that, right? It's called lex talionis. So they would take those two things in Scripture, and they would kind of twist them together. And by the way, that law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that lex talionis principle, that was ultimately a mercy law. That was a mercy law. Because what, what would happen in the Old Testament, the same thing that would happen in our culture today, right? You would come to my property and you would steal one of my cows. Well, I really need that cow, so I would come to your house and I would burn your house down. And then you'd be mad about me burning your house down, so you'd come and you'd kill one of my family members. And then I would come and I'd wipe out your whole family. So it just be, it's just like a cycle of evil and violence and retaliation, and it was, it was awful. So this concept of an eye for an eye was intended to limit retribution. They intended to restrain evil. But the Pharisees took that and they twisted it to mean that we should hate our enemies. It's like if somebody does something to you, you should do something bad to you. That was never the intent of the law ever. So the idea was for them, for the Pharisees, hey, love the people that you like and hate the people that you don't like. So that was the kind of the idea that they taught people. And Jesus kind of steps onto the scene and he says, that is a load of garbage. That is rubbish. I say to you, love your neighbor and love your enemy. The fact that the Pharisees had so twisted and misrepresented Scripture, I think highlights a couple of things, a couple of lessons, a couple of dangers for us, even in the church today, maybe especially in the church today. The first danger is uh, elevating man above God. Elevating a man above God. Listen, the celebrity culture that I see in the American church right now is disturbing. Amen. It's disturbing, to say the least. Where one guy gets elevated and so admired that his, his words become sort of like on par with the Scriptures, on par with God's Word, maybe at some point in some churches even more authoritative than God's Word. see that all the time, and it's a dangerous pattern. Listen, I've said it before, I'll say it many times again, when you come here Sunday morning, I ask you to open your scriptures, even though we have them on the screen, because I don't want you to believe me. I want you to believe God in his word. So these people in the first century, they had just begun to blindly follow these Pharisees because the Pharisees seemed godly to them. They knew the scriptures. They would go in the public square. They would pray these really religious-y, flowery prayers. And so people are like, man... They seem to know what they're talking about. They seem to know God well. They seem to know the scriptures well. And so they just begin to blindly listen and follow these Pharisees. So let that just be a warning for us, church. Never take a man's word over God's word. Never. Ever. The second danger, I think, that we need to be aware of based on this text is this. Most dangerous, the most dangerous false teachers don't teach lies. They teach half-truths. They don't teach lies because it would be easy for us to identify. They teach half-truths, and that is why they are so dangerous. There's one joker on TV, and I'm not going to say his name because you guys would probably know him. But this guy's got a million-dollar smile. You listen to him. He makes you feel all warm and fuzzy talking about God's love. But the guy will never, ever, even if his life depended on he will not preach on sin. He will not preach on God's justice. He will not preach on the cross. He will not preach on the blood of Jesus. He will not preach on anything that might rock the boat for his million dollar enterprise. 
But listen, he's not teaching outright lies. And so even Christians easily get sucked into his web. That is exactly what the Pharisees did. And they misled tens of thousands, maybe, maybe hundreds of thousands of people for generations. So friend, just a word of caution from your pastor here. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you watch on TV. Be careful who you read. Be careful who, what podcast you listen to. Because there are a ton of half-truth hucksters out there that will lead you down dangerous paths just like the Pharisees did. And away from God's heart. The reality is, even in our culture today, we have a ton of these misperceptions, even in the church, even among Christians. You'll hear these things. You guys can probably finish some of these popular statements uh, that you all can hear for me. So let's, let's, here's the first one. See if you guys can finish it for me. God helps those who help themselves, which is, by the way, the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is when we couldn't save ourselves, when we couldn't help ourselves, Jesus came into our mess and he saved us when we couldn't. That's the gospel. So that's unbiblical. Never say that again in your life. <laughs> Hate the sin, love though. Yeah, that's not the Bible either. God won't, I love this one. God won't give you more than you can. Ha! <laughs> that's rich. Tell the disciples that. Tell everybody in scripture that, right? The reality is that it's only when God gives us more that we can handle that we begin to rely on Him. For most of us, it's only then that we begin to press into His strength instead of our own. So that's a hogwash. That's a Christian cussing. What about this one? Uh, when you die, God gets another angel. That's cute. Not in the Bible either. Stop saying that. God wants me to be happy. Listen, God wants you to be like Jesus. God wants you to be like Jesus, which will bring you joy. But that is way different than pursuing whatever sinful inclinations you have in your heart. I've heard more people use that lame excuse as they walk out and destroy their families. Brother, why are you leaving your wife and your kids for your 21-year-old secretary? I know God wants me to be happy. Rubbish! I'm going to punch him in the throat. <laughs> God never designed you to walk out on your wife and your kids. Never. Stop using that. It's not biblical either. You guys are getting me worked up up here. <laughs> All these messed up concepts in our culture, even in the church today, completely unbiblical, completely false. And Jesus steps onto the scene in the first century. And he just starts blowing these things up. Listen, loving our enemies is incredibly hard. Incredibly hard, and it's incredibly hard because it runs completely against our human nature. Complete. Now listen, be, just be honest this morning. What's your first reaction when someone hurts you or betrays you? What's your first reaction? Is your first instinct to be like, man, I love that person. <laughs> I cannot wait to spend some quality time with them. Maybe we should take a family vacation together. That would be lovely. <laughs> Listen, that's not my first reaction. If you're like me, when somebody hurts you, you end up going home and having like 50 conversations in your head about what you should have said. Like what, like you, you just wish you would have thought of something different so that you could have like inflicted maximum damage on their souls in retaliation. Am I the only one that's ever done that? 
guys are a bunch of sinners and liars. <laughs> Listen, somebody warns me, and I, like, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm just driving down the road three months later, six months later, a year later, and I find myself in these, these like, uh, like fantasy conversations. Like I go back in time, and I'm like, man, I wish I would have just told her that she had bad hair and dragon breath. <laughs> like, I wish I just would have thought something that would just like, crush her. Why? Because your pastor is a sinner. I need Jesus. And because that is our human nature. And that's why this teaching from Jesus is so stinking hard. And the reality is, if I were to ask most of you this morning, if I, I'm not going to do this, but if I were to pause and say, hey, look, let's take two minutes. Everybody get up a sheet of paper and a pen. I want you to write down your list of enemies. Most of you would really struggle to write down a list of enemies. A few of you that I know probably wouldn't. Most of you would. Right, so I, I, I was thinking about this this week. I had a hard time coming up. Like, I, I know that there are probably people out there that don't like me for many different reasons. But I, I was thinking about it. I don't have a list of any. Like, there's nobody I can think of. Like, I just hate their guts. Or, or, or that. <laughs> I got one. I got one. <laughs> or, one or, or I can't think of anybody that, that hates my guts. Or I hate their guts. So I really kind of struggle uh, with, with coming up with this a list for the word enemy. And I think that's because most of us, we hear the word enemy, and we tend to think of people like Hitler, don't we? It's like such a harsh word, the word enemy. So we think of Hitler, or we think of ISIS, or some other terrorist organization. But listen to me, church. We need to personalize this. We need to take this teaching to a deeper level. So let me just kind of switch the question up on you a little bit. Do you have people that you can't stand you have people that irritate you in your life? People that just jump all over your last nerve? What about people who have hurt you? People who have wounded you or betrayed you, stabbed you in the back? People that when they walk in the room, you kind of head the other direction. Just so you don't have to interact with them or talk to them. Jesus is saying, listen, when somebody hurts you, when somebody betrays you, when somebody offends you, when somebody stabs you in the back, with a knife still in your back, I want you to love them sacrificially. You to love them until it hurts. You to love them until it costs you something. Now, when you think you can't love them anymore, at that point, I want you to make the choice to love them some more. That is hard, friend. That is difficult. I can still remember where I was on September 11, 2001. You guys remember? Who remembers where you were that moment when the first plane flew into the town? I was in college, and I was walking through the calf, and there was a TV screen up on the wall, and people were beginning to crowd around the TV screen. I remember walking up there watching it, and like everybody, was just in total shock. I can remember going back to my dorm room, and I can remember watching it the rest of the day, watching the second uh, plane fly into the second tower, watching the towers collapse. I remember watching uh, people jump out of you know hundred foot buildings uh, to their death just to avoid the pain of being burned to death. I remember watching just the chaos and the carnage of that event. And I can remember sitting in my room that night with my roommate, and we began to talk about joining the military. And man, we need to do something about this. Can't let them get away with it. So I just remember as, as shock kind of gave way to anger in my heart, as anger sort of turned into the seething rage, and, and that anger and that rage turned into hatred. Now listen, I, I didn't want to join the military that night so I could go like pray and love Muslims. Pray for and love Muslims. I wanted to join the military that night because I wanted them to pay. I wanted them to hurt like they hurt us. I wanted them to bleed and suffer like we were bleeding and suffering. I'm not proud of that, but that's what I felt that night. 
probably not a coincidence, I'm sure it's not a coincidence, that five years later, almost to the day, God sent us to the largest Muslim country in the world as missionaries. It was almost as if God was saying, you want to hate? Watch this. Watch this. I'm going to send, I'm going to send you there. We went there, and we have, we have lovely friends who are Muslims. We've even seen some of them come to faith in Christ. So the moral of the story is be careful, friend. Be careful who you hate. God might send you to them. He's like Jonah and the Ninevites. Now listen, here's the really cool thing. Jesus doesn't just tell us to love our enemies. Like, so he doesn't just give us this nebulous command. And then we're like, man, well, how do we do that? I don't know how to love my enemies. I hate, how can I love somebody that I hate? He doesn't just throw it out there and leave us to figure it out. He actually gives us three very specific ways that we are supposed to love our enemies. Look back at verse 44 in Matthew 5. The first way that we are to love our enemies is this. He says, love them and pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. So you start by praying. That's step one. Now why would you pray for those who persecute you? Why would you, why would you do that? It seems counterintuitive. Like for me, I don't want to pray for people I don't like. I don't enjoy it unless I'm praying for God's justice and wrath on their lives. So, what, so why, why, why does Jesus say step one is to pray for them? Well, listen, have you ever tried praying for somebody that you don't really like? Most of us probably haven't because it's really hard. But what happens when you start doing that? Does it not start to change your heart towards that person? It's really hard to hate somebody that you're praying for, that you're praying God would bless them, bless their marriage. Bless their career. Bless their children. It's really hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. Now just, just imagine if, if Craig, our wonderful youth pastor, and just for the record, where's Craig? Raise your hand over there. There's Craig. Now, listen, just imagine, this didn't happen, just for the record. But just imagine if Craig were to come up to me one day and say, Chris, you have the most girly beard I've ever seen in my life. He didn't say that. He knows better. But look, if he were to say that, I would hate Craig immediately. But if I started to pray for Craig, if I started to pray for his marriage, for, for Rachel, for his kids, that God would bless his life, bless his ministry. Listen, I cannot hate him for long, no matter how badly he insulted my beard. I can't. I just can't. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who wound you. Pray for those who bug you, annoy you, the ones who have betrayed you. And listen, prayer isn't necessarily going to change the other person, is it? It may. God certainly can use prayer to begin to shape somebody else's heart and life. But for sure what it will do is it begin to change us. Amen. It begin to change us. Luke, Luke expands on this teaching in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Don't turn there, but I want to read this to you. This is Jesus teaching, same, same sermon. Luke just gives us some more details. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So yes, pray for your enemies. But believer, don't stop there. You can't stop there. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. That's the second step to loving our enemies. Pray for them and then bless them. Have you ever been so mad? Think back in your life. Have you ever been so mad that you were just like breathing fire and then someone walks in the room and they say something kind to you? Especially if it's the person that you're mad at. What does that type of grace do in the face of anger? I mean, unless you just have a cold, dead heart, that type of grace in the face of anger, anger absolutely melts it away. 
Just melts it away. Proverbs 15, 11 says this. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's true. Jesus says, pray for your enemies and then bless them. So speak kindly to them. Encourage them. Compliment them. And then thirdly, Jesus says, I want you to pray for them. I want you to bless them. And the third thing is, I want you to do good to them. I want you to do good to those who abuse you. I want you to, to, to have actions all your life to show this, to paint this picture where you're living out doing good deeds to those who have hurt you. Now, why on earth would you do good to someone who hates your guts? It makes absolutely no sense. I think Jesus commands us because, listen, it is almost impossible to hate someone who consistently does good to you. Try it sometime. Begin to do good. Begin to do good deeds, good acts to people who irritate you. Begin to do good to those who have wounded you. Bring them dinner. Send them flowers. Invite their kids to your kids' birthday party. Just think of something creative that you can do to show good, to do good to them. I think you would be shocked at how that relationship begins to be transformed. Those are the three ways that Jesus says for us to love our enemies. Again, he doesn't just throw it out there and say, figure it out. He says, this is how you are to love your enemies. I want you to pray for them, I want you to bless them, and then I want you to do good to them. Let's pick back up in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46. Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says, listen, if you just love those who love you, even the worst person on the planet does that. That's easy. That's, that's nothing. It requires nothing of you. I, one of my favorite things to do, my favorite thing to watch are documentaries. So some people have like TV shows that they binge watch. Uh, I like watching documentaries. And so it uh, drives my wife crazy. She's like, are you watching another documentary? But I was watching this documentary a few months ago about a mob boss in South America, kind of this drug lord. And the fascinating thing about this mob boss is he was, listen, he was an evil, monstrous, bloody murderer. I mean, the things that he did were, were sickening. But then they would have video footage of this horrible mob boss at home with like his four little kids and his wife. And he was like the most loving, caring, sensitive, doting guy with his kids and his wife. And Jesus was saying, look, even a murdering, monstrous mob boss can love those who love him. That's nothing. That's not what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, I'm calling you to love the way that God loves. Now church, how, how does God love us? I want to show you Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll be on screen for you. But the Apostle Paul says this. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Friend, God loved you while you were still a sinner. He loved you while you were His enemy. He didn't wait for you to clean your act up. Jesus didn't say, hey, listen, I will die for you. I will forgive you of your sins after you apologize. I'll die for you after you get your life all cleaned up. No, while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, he died to save us. And Jesus looks at his disciples in those days, and he looks at us as his disciples in 2018, and he says, that's how you are to love. That's how you're to love. That's, that's hard. That's hard. It's hard for me to love sacrificially like this with people that I like. Much less people that I don't like. Seems almost impossible. I want, to, I want to end by giving us uh, three principles from this hard teaching of Jesus. The first one is this. Loving your enemies is impossible without Jesus. That's my confession to you this morning. I can't do this. Chris Dillon, in my own flesh, I can't even love the people I like this way. Much less people I don't like. It's only through a transformed heart that a human being can love this way. And Jesus is the only one who can revolutionize a human heart in this way. I love this story in John chapter 3. You guys may remember the story of Nicodemus, right? A really religious guy. He comes up to Jesus and they're having this conversation. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, unless I give you a new heart, Unless I give you a new birth, it's going to be impossible for you to do the things I'm about to tell you to do as my disciple. Things like love your enemy. Without a new heart, it's going to be impossible for you to do things like bless those who curse you. It's going to be absolutely impossible unless I give you a new heart, Nicodemus, to do good to those who harm you. Nicodemus, you need a new heart. And I'm the only one who can give you that. So if you're here this morning and you find that it's just like impossible for you to love your enemies, it's impossible for you to forgive people who have wanted you, it may be because you need a new heart. Maybe because you need a new birth that only Jesus can give you. A new heart that Nicodemus needed, the same new heart that I needed before I knew Christ. The second principle that we can take away from this heart teaching is this. Love always invites forgiveness and initiates healing. If you have a broken relationship or broken relationships in your life, and I'll just imagine uh, for most of us in this room, that's probably the case. Loving the way that Jesus commands his disciples to love. And by the way, just note, this is a command to his disciples. This isn't a suggestion. Like, Jesus wasn't like, oh... Oh, shucks, guys. You know what? I know this is really hard. You probably can't do it. But if you just consider this for me, I'd be really grateful. No, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who abuse you. Now, loving in this radical, sacrificial way, it invites forgiveness into our relationships. And it initiates Healing. It just does. Listen, if you don't believe it, just, just try it. 
I'm not talking about once. I mean, a pattern of doing this in your life. So don't come to me and be like, hey, I said that's something nice to my jerk of a boss once and nothing changed. No, make it a rhythm of your life. Pray for people. Bless them. Do good to them. Make it a pattern. And tell me. Come back and tell me that doesn't begin to shift things in that relationship. It absolutely will. The third principle is this. Loving your enemies paints a picture of the gospel. So when we love, when you love people the way that Jesus teaches us to, listen, it is so countercultural. It is so counterintuitive to our human nature that our actions paint a picture of the gospel in a way that our words never could. And our actions begin to, to paint a picture of how Jesus loved us sacrificially when we were still his enemies. So you start praying for your enemies, you start blessing them, you start doing good to them, and the people in your life will be forced to pause and consider the source of such a radical, perplexing, supernatural love in your life. They're going to have to pause and, and think to themselves, man, this is unusual. There's something different about this person. And as we paint a picture of the gospel with our actions, with our lives, by the way that we love, it will give power to our words when we speak to them. It will give credibility to the gospel when we open our mouths and we point them to Jesus. Now, church, listen to me. This is hard. We cannot do this without Jesus. But when we begin to live our lives in this way, it will absolutely revolutionize our relationships. It will change people in a powerful way that brings healing to them, brings healing to us, and ultimately it brings glory to our God. Let me pray for us as we close. Jesus, my, our confession collectively, my confession personally, this morning would just be, this is a hard, this is hard. God, we can't do this in our own strength. I can't do it without you, without your power, without a transformed heart that only you can give people. So Jesus, I just pray that if there's anybody in this room this morning that hasn't been given a new heart yet, that hasn't experienced a spiritual rebirth by Jesus, I pray today would be that day that they give their heart to you. And you exchange their heart of stone for a heart of flesh. So they can begin to live out these hard teachings that you've required of your kids. You've demanded of your disciples, God. Jesus, for those of us who have been revolutionized by you already, God, give us the courage to begin to live this way. To begin praying for our enemies. To begin blessing them. To begin doing good to those who wound us and hurt us and abuse us. God, help us begin to love like this in our marriages. With our kids with our parents, our friends and neighbors and co-workers. And God, even help us to begin loving people like this that have wounded us, who have hurt us deeply, people who have betrayed us, abused us. God, we cannot, we cannot, we will never do this in our own strength. We can't, it's not in us. 
We can only do this through you, God. So would you help us by the power of your spirit? Father, we ask all of these things in the name that is above every other name. In the name of Jesus.